This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. You're listening to audio from one of our third Thursday webinars on Parkinson's research. In these webinars, expert panelists and people with Parkinson's discuss aspects of the disease and the foundation's work to speed medical breakthroughs. Learn more about the third Thursday webinars at michaeljfox.org slash webinars. Thanks for listening. Thank you everyone for joining us. I'm Dr. Karen Jaffe, your moderator today. I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2008 and have since retired from my OBGYN practice. I'm a member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council, and I'm also a co-founder of InMotion, an amazing wellness center for Parkinson's patients right here in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. Today, our panelists are going to discuss a topic that is not frequently recognized as being part of Parkinson's disease, and that is problems that include the eyes and the visual system. We'll begin with a review of what vision changes and eye issues are known to be due to the normal aging process. This will allow us to then get focused on the topic of this webinar, where we'll talk about what vision and eye changes may occur with Parkinson's disease and the impact of those changes. We'll also cover how scientists are looking into the eye to learn more about Parkinson's disease. So let's meet our panelists. Joining us from Cleveland, Ohio is John Merchant. John was diagnosed just nine months ago and is an active participant at InMotion. Thanks for being here, John. Thanks for asking me. Great. Dr. Marta Fabrikowski is an optometrist at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital in New York City. Thanks for joining us, Marta. Thank you. Also with us today is Dr. Ali Hamandani. He is an instructor in the Division of Neuro-Ophthalmology at the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Glad you're with us, Ali. My pleasure. So I think it comes as no surprise to any of us today that visual problems are a common part of aging. As we get older, several diseases of the eyes can occur regardless of whether you have Parkinson's disease. So at age 60, I can certainly attest to this as my vision isn't what it used to be. Dr. Fabrikowski, this first slide, while not an exhaustive list, must be some of the more common problems you see develop as your patients get older. Uh, certainly. So, you know, vision changes happen uh, through life, you know, from when we're, you know, small to when we, you know, after 40, when we lose the sort of ability to read over time. And, you know, the average onset of Parkinson's is, is sort of, you know, in the 60s or early 60. And the average age of visual sort of difficulty from cataracts is also 60. Macular degeneration is 65. And glaucoma is, you know, roughly 60. So a lot of these things that we see, including dry eye and irritation and things like like that really happen, you know, both with aging. So for anyone tuning in who's a caretaker or who doesn't have PD, uh, you may say, well, I, th I think I may have some of these too. That's, it's quite common. Uh, we're sort of all in good company and having some of these. Some can be accelerated or they can be uh, sort of worsened by PD, but by and large, these are uh, quite common um, in normal aging. Well, that's a great that's a great review and important for us to have that overview because I'm sure that having this info up front has already answered some of the questions our listeners have had about having these problems and wondering if any of them are due to or affected by the Parkinson's disease. It's, it's interesting to note that they, they are on the same timeline of getting diagnosed at age 60 is pretty common for Parkinson's disease and these things are happening at the same time. It would be it would seem obvious that people would wonder whether this was from their Parkinson's disease or not. Let's go on. So this next slide shifts the focus, sorry, no pun intended there, to the many vision changes that can happen with Parkinson's disease. Don, let's bring you into this conversation. You were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease less than a year ago, but have already had some trouble. 
please share with our audience the vision cha challenges that brought you to see your ophthalmologist. Well, just like most others, I put off having uh, the seeing the new neurologist on, on this because I had tremors in 2015, but I also had problems with my back. So in in I had fusion of my back in 2017, and I put off having everything looked at. Once I found out all, all the problems on my back were behind me, or I'll put it this way, what could be done with it. Then I, I mentioned to my doctor, okay, now let's look at the tremor part. And uh, so he did, and I've, I found out it was Parkinson's. And I also noticed that over the years, I had more pressure in my eyes and everything. So I I went to the ophthalmologist last this past March, and he told me that everything was okay except I had dry eyes now. And uh, so he he put me on eye drops every day, and it's made a difference in it too. Great. But I'm also. 74 years old, so that could be a difference too. Yeah. Dr. Fabrikowski, in a Parkinson's patient, is there a specific cause for the dry eye related to the disease itself? And is that different from what we see in, in an aging patient who doesn't have Parkinson's disease? Uh, certainly. Uh, the answer is yes and no. So, you know, dry eye comes from a lot of things. It comes from, you know, hormonal changes. It comes from our lids not meeting and not, you know, blinking as well together. Uh, it comes from the eyes not, you know, the lids not sticking to the eyes as much. It comes from low tear production and all kinds of glands around our eyes that sort of with, you know, normal aging just, you know, don't work as well. In PD, what we see is uh, people aren't blinking sort of as often. So if the average person in their 60s, 70s, something like that, blinks about 16 to 18 times a minute, sometimes in PD, people are blinking 11 times a minute. And every time you blink, you lubricate the eyes. So sometimes le less blinking in a patient with PD can cause exacerbated dryness. Uh, sometimes it's a tear film quality where the tears have multiple layers. They're not just like a drop of water and certain layers, you know, um, can be sort of dried out quicker than others, which in PD can bother the vision a little bit more. So sometimes we do uh, can attribute some acceleration of it to PD. Are there any special eye drops or ointments that people should be using or is this over the counter? So, uh, yes to both. Uh, there are over-the-counter um, eye drops that um, can be used. Now, artificial tears come in different formulations. Some are quite watery, some are more gelatinous, some are ointments. Uh, some come with preservatives, some come without. So, uh, some should be used many times a day, some should be used less often, some just before bed. So, there are lots of over-the-counter options, sort of best advised by seeing, you know, an optometrist or ophthalmologist. Um, and then there are actually also prescription drops for dryness, which work in some people and not for others, and they're indicated for some people and not for others. So if you look up treatment for dry eye, there are dozens and dozens of treatments, but which sort of specific treatment relates uh, best to you uh, would come out uh, in a basic exam. Well, I never knew there were so many options for, for eye drops. 
Um, we have right. a question from one of our listeners uh, who asked, can you safely wear <clears throat> contact lenses if you have dry eyes from Parkinson's? So, uh, so yes and no, whether you have Parkinson's or not, um, with dry eye and contact lenses, it just takes figuring out the right algorithm for you. So contact lenses naturally soak up tears. So if your eyes are naturally dry and you're wearing the contact lens, that can sometimes make it worse. However, that depends on the kind of contact you're using. A one-day lens you put in the eye in the morning, throw away at night, absorbs less tears than a one-month lens. There's different coatings and different plastics and different eye drops you can use with or without the contacts. So there are many ways to have both dry eye and wear contact lenses successfully. It just takes some time to figure out sort of what's best for you, uh, which again would sort of come out in an exam. They'd look at the contacts, they'd look at the drops you're using, look at your dryness, and sort of put it all together and what's best for you. Great. So, Dr. Hotmandani, we know that Parkinson's can affect general mobility, but can it also impair movement of the eyes? Uh, yes, it can, and it does so in a couple of different ways. Um, the first is that uh, um, when you want to look quickly from one target to another, um, your eyes have to move very quickly. That movement can become a little bit slowed um, in Parkinson's disease, although not that much. Uh, we also know that that movement from one target to another may not be as accurate uh, as someone without PD. Um, and that's not something that uh, you would necessarily notice directly, um, but comes out in uh, different ways. So, for example, reading requires moving your eyes quickly from one word to another, to another, and to another. And people with PD might find that that takes a little bit longer to do because it takes just a split second longer to find the word that you have to go to next. Um, so reading time or kind of the complaint that it takes longer to read than it used to, that is quite common in PD. Uh, but even if the eyes are moving normally, um, they can uh, be misaligned or pointed in two slightly different directions in PD, and that causes double vision. Uh, so when I say double vision, what I mean is seeing two of the same thing, so looking at a letter or word and seeing two of them instead of one, uh, and specifically double vision from Parkinson's disease and from any other neurologic disease is double vision that's present only with both eyes open. So you see double but you cover one eye and then the double goes away. Or you cover the other eye and the double also goes away, but it's only with both eyes that the double vision is present. That's the kind of bit, uh, double vision I'm talking about. And in PD, we think that that happens because of two different reasons. Um, the first is that uh, there are parts of your brain that are responsible for holding the eyes together. And the reason that people without PD or you know most other people do not see double is because they have two eyes, but they're pointed at the same thing. And if they're exactly pointed at the same thing, then you won't see double. But if one is pointed at one thing and the other is pointed a little bit off to the side, um, those two eyes will be seeing two slightly different things, and that will register to you as double vision. And so in Parkinson's disease, the parts of the brain that are responsible for holding the eyes together may become affected, and that can cause them to be uh, pointed in two slightly different directions and to give you double vision. Uh, in addition, we also know that it turns out a lot of um, people without PD or otherwise healthy people have a little bit of uh, misalignment of the eyes, but they don't have double vision because there are other parts of their brain that adjust for that, that kind of fuse the images together. And uh, those parts of the brain can become affected in PD as well. So it's a little unclear whether uh, double vision uh, is sort of a direct eye orientation problem in PD, or if it's more kind of putting those two images together. 
Uh, but fortunately, double vision in PD, which is actually um, quite common, a lot more common than people think, it can be up to 20% of patients, um, are easily treated with a special type of glasses called prisms. Uh, and these are glasses that basically adjust the image that one eye sees, kind of brings it over so that you don't see double anymore. We, we have a question from one of our listeners. If you fix double vision with prism glasses, will it get worse and you'll need to modulate the glasses again? Uh, that's a great question. So uh, double vision from Parkinson's disease is quite amenable to prisms. Any kind of double vision like this can worsen a little bit over time. And so periodically an adjustment in the prisms may be required. Uh, but uh, using prisms does not accelerate that process. It doesn't make things worse or it doesn't um, kind of weaken your eyes or anything like that. If you do get prisms, you might find that once you take them off, you'll notice the double vision again pretty quickly, um, but then you might adjust to it afterwards. So um, in other words, using prisms may, um, uh, like if you start to use prisms, you'll notice the double vision once you take them off, but the underlying process, the, the misalignment of the eyes, um, that doesn't get worse uh, if you use prisms compared to if you don't. And are there any eye exercises that people can do besides wearing special glasses that they can do to help this? Um, yeah, so there are a variety of eye exercises that have been uh, offered um, over the years. Uh, most of them have not been systematically studied um, in clinical trials the way that, for example, Parkinson's medications have. So it is difficult to tell whether they um, actually work or not, and if they do, whether that applies to PD um, as well as non-PD patients. Um, there is one type of eye exercise that can be helpful and has been shown to be helpful, but it's only for a specific type of double vision, and that type of double vision is called convergence insufficiency. And basically, you know that you have that if you have double vision only when you read or only when looking at things up close, but not when looking at a distance or looking further away. That type of double vision is amenable to a specific type of eye muscle exercise, um, that are kind of colloquially called pencil push-ups. <laughs> and basically what it consists mm -hmm. of is um, holding a pencil or a pen in front of you and bringing it close towards your nose and trying to kind of follow it in. Um, and there are um, um, eye doctors you can see to help you through these exercises and also a variety of online resources. But again, that's only right. for a very specific type of double vision, not for all double vision. Okay. Um, Dr. Fabrikowski, I'm curious about uh, the loss of dopamine on our ability to distinguish colors as listed here. Is this the sort of color blindness that Parkinson's people develop? So, so, so color blindness, um, or like we uh, call it, you know, color deficiency or color weak, is, is sort of a different process. That is something to be color blind or to be color weak is something you're typically born with. Um, it's typically in both eyes and sort of related to genetics. In terms of colors, you know, through life changing, uh, part of it can be, you know, lo loss of dopamine in the retina, where people notice uh, less contrast uh, too. So that is, you know, black on white or gray on gray. So some people notice they have to increase the contrast, you know, on an iPad or on a Kindle or on a computer. Um, and sometimes colors can become sort of dimmer is how people uh, describe it. Now, that also happens with the general sort of slow development of cataracts. So even if you don't have PD and you don't have a loss of dopamine, colors can seem a little more washed out. And I'm sure some of the listeners here uh, could can think of someone who has had cataract surgery who said, wow, the colors are so much brighter afterwards. So it can be, you know, from changes in dopamine in the retina, but it can also be through sort of normal uh, cataract growth and sort of color change inside the eye.
if it's not due to cataract, do you think you may not know the answer to this question, but do you think that um, it can affect a Parkinson's a Parkinson patient's ability to perform how they perform on cognitive tests that require color delineation or recognition? Uh, I mean, potentially, uh, you know, people describe uh, if you look at pictures, the sort of people that explain that their color has changed. Things do look dimmer, so a green is maybe not as bright green, or a blue is not as bright blue, or a red is not as you know bright red. So there could be some you know difficulty with color discrimination, and they they do have quite lengthy color vision tests where you organize these little caps of colors. There's you know many 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 of them, and um, we. It has been noticed that people with PD sometimes don't put the caps in the right order when they go from yellow to red to green to blue to purple, you know. So that there, there is, it has been noticed that people have some difficulty with it, but in terms of actual life function, I mean, red is still red and green is still green. It's not, you know, it's sort of a total loss. It's just sort of a dimming. Right. Um, so, John. I'm wondering if when you went yes. to your ophthalmologist or your lumen source specialist, did they attribute your dry eye problem to aging or to your Parkinson's disease? He only mentioned uh, Parkinson's of, of, uh, on, on how people with, with, uh, with it do not blink as much. And I've, I've actually noticed my, myself staring more often at things, especially while I'm driving. I've noticed that uh, I will blink more now on purpose than I was before. But, but as far as the colors and everything, I haven't noticed anything changing so far. Hopefully it doesn't. Okay. So this slide reminds us that even our eyelids are controlled by muscles that can be affected by Parkinson's. Dr. Hamandani, can you help us to understand what these conditions mean and how effective um, are available treatments for them? Sure. So the, um, the first one here, uh, which I think we've already kind of talked about, is decreased spontaneous blinking um, in PD. And that has to do with uh, the parts of the brain that are responsible for telling your eyelids how often to blink. Um, you know, when you think about it, we don't really think consciously every time we blink. It's kind of an automatic function. Um, but the rate at which we do that is uh, determined by a number of things, including certain parts of the brain that kind of act like a pacemaker for your eyelids, if you will. Um, and as uh, Dr. Fabrikowski already discussed, artificial tears and other types of eye drops uh, can help lubricate the eye, you know, if your eyelids aren't blinking enough. Um, as an aside, you know, John mentioned consciously blinking more often, and that's great when you can do it. But I find it's uh, actually kind of hard to do that or, you know, we have so much going on during our day as it is, it's kind of hard to remind yourself every few seconds or few minutes to blink. Um, uh, an alternative thing you might think about doing is that it's actually been shown that in Parkinson's, you blink more when you're doing something active like reading or playing a game or uh, other um, kind of complex activities like that, that's actually in contrast to people without PD who blink less when they do those things. So what I always tell patients is that kind of living a normal, active, full, healthy lifestyle um, can kind of indirectly help you blink more and help uh, treat your dry eye a little bit too. Uh, but getting to the two eyelid disorders that you were talking about, uh, Karen, so the first um, is something called blepharospasm which is abnormal involuntary eyelid closure. Basically, the eyes repetitively blink or squeeze shut. Um, this is considered a type of dystonia, and in the movement disorders world, dystonia just refers to a repetitive or sustained muscle contraction. Um, both uh, blepharospasm and the other eyelid disorder that I'll talk about in a second, which is called eyelid opening apraxia, both of these 
uh, are actually more common in atypical causes of Parkinson's symptoms, um, such as uh, the disorders progressive supranuclear palsy or multiple systems atrophy, if people are familiar with those. Um, or you may be familiar with the distinction between typical and atypical Parkinson's. So these are both more common in atypical Parkinson's, but do still happen in Parkinson's disease as well. So again, blepharospasm causes this repetitive of squeezing or closing of the eyelids. It's often accompanied by sensitivity to bright light. Um, and uh, this can, this usually a manifestation of Parkinson's later in the disease itself, uh, but it can sometimes be, um, it can either occur sort of at the peak uh, in the setting of dyskinesias, uh, you know, after you take your medication, or rarely it can happen as a wearing off phenomenon as your medication wears off. Um, and uh, in addition to titrating those medications, um, this uh, condition, blepharospasm, uh, can be treated uh, with botulinum toxin injections uh, in the muscles around the eye. Um, so this is a medication that's injected just under the skin, and it weakens those muscles a little bit such that they don't squeeze and close as much. Uh, and then the other eye so problem thing... that we see... No. Yes. No, go ahead. Finish up. Oh, I was going to add that the other eyelid problem we see is something called eyelid opening apraxia, which is after you've closed your eyes, kind of difficulty opening them again or initiating eyelid movement. Um, this is different from blepharospasm because it's not that the eyelids are squeezing shut, it's just that they won't open. So uh, for anyone who's had this, what they would experience is, well, actually often happens in the morning when you first wake up, you wake up, you go to open your eyes, and you're trying to open them, you raise your eyebrows, but then the eyelids themselves take a little bit of time to come. Uh, to come up. Uh, you can kind of think of it as freezing, which is a term that many with PD will be familiar with, freezing of the eyelids, although that's not technically correct. Um, it has to do with the signal that goes to, to tell your eyes to open when you want them to. And there are a variety of adjunctive treatments that can help with that. So this may seem like a silly question, but what happens when a patient who has Parkinson's who blinks less frequently be, develops dystonia, which causes excessive blinking? Do they, do they equal each other out? Uh, that, that is uh, actually a really great question. So uh, they <laughs> don't necessarily cancel each other out because uh, blepharospasm and PD may not be constant. You know, it's not that the eyes are constantly blinking and squeezing throughout the day. There may be times, especially if it's medication-related, where they may, that may happen more than other times. Um, uh, I guess one point to mention, so I talked about botulinum toxin as a treatment for blepharospasm. Uh, if that's successful and the eyes are blinking less frequently, that could potentially bring out the dry eye problems that we had talked about earlier. So it's, that's important to consider um, uh, if you're going to opt for uh, botulinum toxin uh, treatment for blepharospasm to kind of know that dry eye is a potential side effect of that. There's always something, isn't there? Um, Dr. Fabrikowski, yes. at what point in Parkinson's disease do people tend to have these eye problems begin? Is it can it be early on in the disease, or is it late, are these late consequences of, of the disease? Uh, are you referring to the eye movements or just eye things in general? Eye things in general. So, I mean, so that, that can happen, you know, before Parkinson's. That can happen, you know, if you're diagnosed at 70 and you've started to have dry eye at 60, you know, that can happen. Uh, that can happen at any point, you know, and we don't really know exactly in terms of staging or years after diagnosis when these things happen. We know that some things happen much later um, in Parkinson's, like like people who have hallucinations or people that have, uh, Dr. Hamadani was just talking about the, you know, inability to open the eyes. Sometimes that can happen 
happen later on in the course. But in terms of knowing exactly when things happen, one year after diagnosis, stage one, stage, you know, sort of, you know, wherever you are, we're not really sure, and we're, we're still sort of learning all about that. Um, we, have a, we have a fair amount of questions. I'll start with you on this, Dr. Fabrikowski, on uh, floaters and the link to Parkinson's disease. And, and if they are linked, are there any strategies to help with them? So floaters um, are come from the back of the eye. There's a vitreous gel. They give, the eye has two components, two compartments. I'm sorry. There's a front part of the eye liquid and there's a back part of the eye liquid. The back part of the eye liquid is known as the vitreous, which is a gel. And when you're born, all kinds of things are dissolved in that proteins, collagens, all kinds of stuff in there. And as we get older, those things sort of start clumping together. And even as early as your 30s or 40s, you can start seeing floaters. And then, depending on sort of the kind of prescription you have and the length of your eye and things like that, as we get older, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, that vitreous gel sort of clumps together and detaches from the retina. That does not mean you have a retinal attachment. This is not a retinal attachment. This is just your vitreous moving around, that gel in the back of the eye, and that causes floaters. And that happens whether you have PD or not. In fact, everyone in their lives at some point will get a vitreous attachment where the gel moves away, you know, from the retina with age. And, you know, what you can do for that, there are, um, if you have a lot of floaters, that are sort of really bothering you and you can't see through them to work or to walk or, you know, whatnot. There are procedures that they, you know, can do to remove those. Those are quite invasive and we generally do not recommend those unless it's, you know, absolutely extraordinary. There's some new procedures like lasers and things that people get for those, but again, those are those are quite new and we don't generally recommend them. So usually what we tell people is when you see these floaters, number one, if they're urgent, if they happened, if you suddenly are noticing a lot of new floaters, like a hundred new floaters or a shower curtain of new floaters, in the last 24 hours, go get them checked out and make sure it's just that vitreous and nothing else. But if you've had them for a while, you know, what we tell people is usually over time, people start to either A, notice them less, the brain sort of learns to turn them off, or B, they'll fall, you know, with gravity below the pupillary line and then you don't notice them even though they're still there. So if you can live with them, they're yours to keep. And uh, if not, then if you see someone who does retina, a retina specialist, they could talk with you about options. But if they're sudden, you should go in you know, sort of quite soon and be seen. Great. Um, Dr. Hamadani, we're getting a fair amount of questions about uh, DBS. And since it typically targets Parkinson's motor symptoms, can deep brain stimulation change or improve vision, vision issues? Uh, great question. So uh, deep brain stimulation can potentially help, but potentially worsen certain visual symptoms, kind of depending on what your initial symptoms are and uh, sort of where the deep brain stimulation is. So for, um, uh, for the dry eye and decreased blinking, deep brain stimulation can be helpful, and that's because it, um, you know, the blink rate is something that follows the rest of your motor symptoms in PD very well. So if your motor symptoms get well, you're moving more easily and walking more easily, uh, you're probably blinking more frequently as well. And so dry eye may get better after deep brain stimulation. Uh, most double vision after deep brain stimulation does not change much. Um, in fact, sometimes, um, particularly if your deep brain stimulation is into the subthalamic nucleus, uh, which is one of the two different surgical targets for DBS, uh, sometimes double vision can come out or be made worse after DBS. And that has to do with the spread of voltage uh, of the electrical current from the motor target of the DBS into some nearby areas that control eye movement. If that's the case, that can be uh, treated by adjusting the settings of the DBS. 
So in general, I don't think that uh, double vision is a long-term complication or problem from most uh, DBS, but it is something to be aware of. Um, in terms of the eyelid disorders that we talked about, uh, eyelid apraxia, so that difficulty opening the eyelids, can come out or be made worse after DBS, um, usually within the first year if that's going to happen. And that's also potentially amenable to adjusting the settings. Great. So let's talk about medication. Dr. Fabrikowski, both of the drugs listed here are commonly used, amantadine for dyskinesia and artane for tremors and dystonia. Are these drugs commonly known to cause vision changes, and do you think most movement disorder specialists are aware of those? Uh, sort of to address some of those questions, um, and I would defer to Dr. Hamdani about some of these medication um, sort of uh, sort of side effects. But um, they can cause uh, they can cause some dry eye. You know, we're all connected. So any medication you're taking, whether it's one of these or a supplement or any sort of medication, you know, we're all connected. So if it's drying you out, you know, in, in any place in your body, that can include the eyes. In terms of the vision changes, now some of these um, drugs that are used can change the size of the pupil. Um, it can make it larger. It can change sort of the focusing. So in some cases, the vision can be changed. You know, some of these, you know, a lot of those temporary. But in terms of knowing, you know, whether, you know, neurologists or movement disorder specialists are aware of this, you know, I, it's hard to tell. Um, our neurologists here, uh, Northwell Health in Manhattan, um, are, are fairly aware, and we sort of talk back and forth. But I think both with ophthalmology, you know, and with neurology, I think we have a lot to learn. And I think that there's, you know, sort of a lot of collaboration that we should be doing back and forth between neurology and ophthalmology, we should be telling neurology what we're seeing and neurology should be telling us, you know, sort of what medications they're on and what they're suspecting. So I, I think uh, sort of at the crux of your question, the basic answer is I think we can do a better job working together between ophthalmology and neurology in terms of all these medications. Dr. Hamdani, any uh, sort of follow-up with that? Um, yeah, so I agree. Um, these medications can cause dry eye because they uh, decrease your tear production, and they can also cause difficulty focusing because of the pupillary changes that Dr. Fabrikowski mentioned. I think that most uh, neurologists are aware of these, but they may not necessarily be asking you about them every time you see them. Um, and uh, that's why I think a recurring theme whenever I see Parkinson's patients is that, you know, I've had these visual symptoms, but I didn't know that they could be related to Parkinson's or to my medication because, and I think that's in part because no one asked. So I encourage everyone to be vocal about any symptom you're having, including visual symptoms, um, so that uh, your neurologist can address them or can refer them to someone like me if needed. About these medications, amantadine and trihexyphenidyl, the other thing I'll add is that rarely they can cause an acute vision problem called angle closure glaucoma. So glaucoma is an eye disease that has to do with uh, increased pressure inside the eye. And when that happens suddenly, it can cause intense, um, often unilateral or you know, one-sided or both-sided, um, intense eye pain, redness, and vision loss. Uh, and that's caused by a sudden increase in eye pressure. So if you start one of these medications and you have any sudden changes in vision or in eye pain, you should see a doctor right away. And on that, on that note, do you think that if a patient's having vision changes, it's best to start with their neurologist or to start with an ophthalmologist? Uh, I, think, I think, to be honest, either would be good. Uh, in general, I think if it's I would start with your eye doctor, but certainly let your neurologist know. And um, as Dr. Fabrikowski said, the two should be communicating back and forth. Uh, and then there are folks like me, neuro-ophthalmologists, who kind of combine both together um, that can help uh, as well. Great. Um, Dr. Hamdani, as a neuro-ophthalmologist, you seem like just the right person to talk to about medications, hallucinations, and Parkinson's disease. What can you tell us about this topic? 
Sure. So um, hallucinations, uh, believe it or not, are a visual symptom. I know many people don't think of them as vision-related per se, but you are seeing something, and therefore it is vision-related. Um, and hallucinations in uh, PD can happen as part of the disease itself in later stages, uh, but can also be made worse by uh, virtually any medication that can treat Parkinson's disease, although the ones that are most likely to cause it would be um, the long-acting dopamine agonists like ropinirole, pramipexol, or rotigotine patch. Uh, and then the anticholinergics like trihexyphenidyl can do it as well. Uh, well I think one important thing to note is that uh, hallucinations um, don't necessarily mean that you have uh, psychosis or other problems. They can happen sort of in isolation without confusion, some of these other things. And uh, they, in other words, they don't mean that you're, quote, crazy, which is not really a term that we use in neurology anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, but so, yeah. in other words, uh, so in summary, can be uh, part of the disease itself, can be made worse by certain medications. One thing that uh, is something that we're starting to learn a little bit about but needs more research is that we think that uh, re decreased vision or not seeing as well uh, from eye diseases such as macular degeneration or glaucoma may be a risk factor for hallucinations in PD. Um, and that's based off of several small studies, although it's an active area of research that I'm working on currently. Um, and so uh, I think the implication there is that um, as someone with PD, you should still see an eye doctor every year for kind of routine screening and treatment of these eye diseases like glaucoma or macular degeneration, or if you have diabetes, you should make sure that that's not affecting the eye, um, both because those are important for preserving your vision and your quality of life, but also because maintaining your vision uh, can help you in other ways. And one potential way is that it might decrease your risk of hallucinations. Again, might. Okay. So um, this slide talks about how the eye changes may help study Parkinson's progress. I think, Dr. Hamdani, this is something you can give us a little bit more insight on. Yeah. So um, I think there are two, when we think about um, uh, imaging or studying the, the eye and eye movement in Parkinson's, there are kind of two main things. So one is to kind of better understand the symptoms of Parkinson's and where they come from. Uh, and then the other is kind of monitoring the progression of disease and kind of understanding more about the biology of the disease. Um, so I talked at the very beginning about eye movement, and there can be a little bit of slowing or a little bit of inaccuracy of eye movement, um, but it's quite subtle, and it can be pretty hard to see just when you're examining someone sitting across from you. But there are ways of recording eye movement using kind of a variety of different goggles and other devices that can actually measure the speed of eye movement and give you much more precise measurements. Um, and uh, actually, likewise, uh, with blinking, um, you could uh, count the number of times that someone blinks in a minute, although that's pretty hard to do. Um, or something that people are interested in is kind of using videos, you know, videotape yourself at home, for example, and the video will kind of automatically count your blinks and can give us more information that way. Um, but there's also a lot of interest in understanding about the pathology, sort of why and how Parkinson's happens that has to do with the eye. So there's an abnormal protein called alpha-synuclein that accumulates in Parkinson's disease in the brain. And there have been some studies that show that it might also accumulate in the back of the eye, which is called the retina. And this is really interesting because unlike the brain, which is very hard to visualize 
actually it's impossible to visualize directly. You have to either do a special scan to try and see it, uh, or ultimately it's a, a biopsy or autopsy that shows you the changes in the brain. Um, so unlike the brain, which is very hard to see, the retina is very easy to see. If you dilate someone's pupils and you look in the back of the eye, you can take a special picture and you can see the retina right there. That's why some people are interested in ways to kind of measure alpha-synuclein or other changes in the retina in the back of the eye. There's also been some studies showing a little bit of thinning of the retina, um, and that's uh, using a widely used um, kind of available technique, uh, which is called an OCT, or optical coherence tomography, but it's, it's a laser scan of the eye, basically. Um, and that can show you the different layers of the retina and show that they may be a little bit thin in Parkinson's compared to people without. Um, this is still an area of ongoing research, so none of these are used as diagnostic tests for PD yet, although it's possible they may be used in the future. Uh, with thinning of the retina, um, the interpretation of that test can be difficult because a little bit of thinning is normal with age uh, and is also normal with uh, thinning of the brain. So it's kind of hard to know which of those happened first. Um, and there's a big chicken and egg question in Parkinson's, you know, what part, where does the disease begin? Does it spread to other areas? That sort of thing. Are any of these things seen in the years before somebody gets diagnosed with Parkinson's? The truth is that no one really knows because it's kind of hard to identify patients for research before they've developed symptoms of PD. The one exception would be um, individuals with genetic forms of PD where they may know ahead of time that they're going to get it based off of a strong family history, um, but those really haven't been studied that well. So I don't think anyone knows the answer to those questions yet. I think as we move into the phase of identifying patients at risk, that these are kind of things that populations that will be able to do these um, tests on and to see whether they develop any of these signs before they actually develop Parkinson's disease. It'll be an interesting thing to watch for. Okay, well, wow, we're here at our last slide here already before we take some of the listeners' questions. Um, John, let's talk about how you're managing your vision issues and what sort of impact it's having on your quality of life. Well, I doubt that you are an avid needle pointer. I'm curious if you are still able to do some things that require visual acuity. Well, I do a lot of woodworking, and so the, the combination of the sawdust and now that I, I know that I'll have dry eye anyways without sawdust, uh, it makes me more aware of wearing my goggles and glasses as I'm working with the wood. Uh, one thing I was wondering, though, whether that wearing goggles, safety glasses, would dry out the eye more than just uh, regular glasses. Doctor, if you could that answer one? that, please. <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, well, I think neither glasses would, would cause your eye to dry out. Um, and I do think that if your word work excuse me, woodworking, that wearing those safety goggles is a great idea. The last thing you would want is a piece of wood to fly into your eye, which could scratch it and make the dryness and all those problems much, much worse. Um, eye protection is very important. Dr. Paprakowski, you know what? We're getting a lot of questions about um, the change in depth perception that people have. Um, I think that a lot of people find that, especially it implies to their ability to drive. Um, and and so could you discuss that, why people have that depth perception issue and how that would impact their ability to continue driving? 
Uh, certainly. So I'm actually going to reach back to something that Dr. Hamdani said earlier. Uh, you know, so uh, you know, with PD, uh, without PD, but also you know, certainly with PD, when your eyes sort of don't work that well together, or they start to have trouble here and there, your depth perception is affected. So you know, instead of using both eyes to look, you know, at a far distant point or to be able to see things that are overlapping, the eyes may not work quite well together. Now, some of those uh, things can be corrected uh, with glasses. So sometimes there you know, if the glasses are not optimal or if there's a difference in vision between the eyes, uh, having a different kind of glasses can help with the depth. Um, and having a different design of glasses, that can be key. For example, what I mean by that is if you have glasses that are progressives, which are quite convenient because it means you have distance vision in the top of the lens, computer in the middle, and reading on the bottom, those are great because they're convenient. You can put them on and see, you know, just about everything. However, you know, with PD and sometimes with the vision, with the, sorry, the eye muscles not working well together, it can be difficult to get into the those specific, those very small sometimes areas of vision. So what we recommend sometimes is just single vision glasses for different tasks, whether it's depth perception you know, at the computer when you're typing, whether it's you know, um, eating and putting down a glass, whether it's driving far away and seeing how far you know, a car is and in which lane and things it is. It could be best to have just a separate pair of distance, separate computer and separate reading glasses because then even if the eyes are not working perfectly well together, you functionally have that whole lens of that same distance to focus versus having a centimeter and a half or, you know, whatever it is, you know, in terms of a progressive lens. So sometimes it just takes, you know, evaluation with that. Um, and sometimes if you know that your depth is not good in situation A, B, C, you know, sort of whatever you're doing, just being an extra aware of that and taking your time looking at, you know, the angle of a cupboard or, you know, exactly where things are placed sort of in your surroundings, just taking that extra time can help too. So some of these, you know, with evaluation and sort of minor, you know, tweaks uh, can be helped. Uh, but certainly um, in terms of driving specifically, uh, you know, in many states, I know in New York, for example, there really is only a, a vision that you have to be better than in order to drive. So we, we can't do, you know, so that's all we test. And when your vision is better than a certain amount, you're, you're okay to drive. So it's, it's really an individual, you know, decision and it has much more to do with than just vision. Uh, you know, we can measure someone to be 2040, which is sort of the cutoff in New York, but they could still not feel safe driving or they could feel like they don't have good depth perception or they could feel like they're having, you know, issue A, B, and C. So, so driving is is much more than sort of just vision, um, and we usually defer to the patient to say, you know, how safe they're feeling, maybe, you know, limit it to, you know, going to the grocery store or whatever places you know within a mile and on a bright day when things are, you know, so so vision and driving is sort of quite a complicated um, question with, with no sort of easy answer, um, and vision is really only just part of it. Well, it's interesting because I, I have a progressive lens um, prescription for my glasses, but I find that I, they're very difficult to use on the, for, the, for the near reading. Um, I have to take them off because, and, I, and I'm wondering how many general optometrists or ophthalmologists are aware of this issue with Parkinson's uh, and, and having that be, you know, their depth perception issues. Um, I would think that probably uh, it's not very well known to people in general who don't deal with that many Parkinson's patients that that would be the case. Um, certainly, depth perception can lead to falls. As you mentioned, you should know where your what your surroundings are, and and even taking stair the stairs. I'm sure that there's um, you know there's an impact in that, and that people must it must be one of the reasons people fall as much as they do down the stairs. 
Uh, certainly, you know, and some of that has to do with contrast, too. You know, if you're looking down the subway stairs, you know, and all the stairs are the same color, you know, and you have difficulty seeing, you know, the shadows and the depth, you know, that could be, you know, it has, you know, that may not have anything to do with your eye muscle movements. That could just have to do with contrast and going from, you know, light to dark um, and things like that. So, you know, being being careful with mobility with, all you know, all these things um, is paramount. So, you know, to be to have your eyes in the best sort of optimal health where, you know, things are not blurry because they're dry, things are not blurry because it's a, you know, the wrong progressive or the right progressive or, you know, what have you, um, sort of best optimizes you and positions you to best get around. Wow. It's, it, all, it all adds up, doesn't it? Um, so I think we're going to go ahead and um, take some questions here. Um, we have one question that the person says they have the opposite of dry eye. They, their eyes weep continually. Is this linked to PD? Dr. Fabrikowski, I'll ask you that question. Oh, sure. Um, so when your eyes are watering, um, that actually tells me they're dry. And they're watering because they're dry, and oftentimes. And that seems counterintuitive. You know, people are saying, how are my eyes watering if they're dry? Or, you know, how are they dry if they're, you know, watering? I have too much tears. Well, what happens is, for many reasons, you know, when your eyes are dry, the natural response of the eyes to water is to help it. But the tears that it makes reflexively are not good tears. They're not the kind of tears that you want to sort of keep on your eyes. So it could be that your eyes, you know, are actually drying. Could it be from PD? Of course. Could it be from aging, you know, of course. Uh, it could be that, you know, your, your lids aren't, you know, meeting quite well together. So when you're blinking, it's not a full blink and that little area is drying out. Sometimes what we find is something called lid imbrication, where the upper lid and lower lid may not meet head on. They may meet, you know, a little bit skewed, in which case the tears are falling off the eyes because the lids aren't, you know, keeping them on. So, you know, the eyes watering can actually be a sign of other things. So, you know, your eyes are trying to repair something on them. Wow. Um, Ali, uh, we have a question about whether contact lenses can have prisms. Uh, unfortunately, no. Contact lenses cannot have prisms. So um, using prisms for double vision really does require uh, moving out of contact lenses and back into glasses. Uh, one thing I will add, though, is that um, the double vision from PD may not be present at all times. Um, and, and just to kind of emphasize what I was talking about earlier, it may only be present with certain activities, such as reading, for example. So you could conceivably wear contact lenses at distance during the day, you know, if you're driving or something, but then to read, um, if you're going to read the newspaper in the evening, then you might need to switch. Um, so that switching back and forth can be quite difficult, which is why, um, in general, uh, if someone's going to need prisms, we generally recommend moving out of contact lenses and back into glasses. Uh, and as Dr. Fabrikowski said, contact lenses can make dry eye worse, and it requires some extra steps to kind of deal with that anyway. And I assume that there's a difference between hard and soft contact lens uh Wears, not that there are many, many, many hard lens wears left, but there's probably still some who hang on to those. My understanding is that hard lenses are reserved for very specific situations. So as you said, they're not used that often, but they have their own kind of set of um, care associated with them. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with basically uh, with Dr. Hamdani. They're, they're, you know, hard lenses are great, and the vision is excellent. So, you know, they're actually coming back into vogue, uh, believe it or not, because the vision, the clarity of vision, if you're filled, if you're fitted with 
good hard lenses is extraordinary. It's better than soft lenses. It's better than glasses. Your vision is very good. The downside is discomfort and having to get used to them, and it sort of comes with its own sort of territory. Can dryness happen with both hard and soft lenses? You know, of course. Is it worse with one or the other? Well, it depends on modality. You know, contact lenses are made, both hard lenses and soft lenses are made of dozens of different plastics, different coatings, different designs. They could be too big. They could be too small. They could be too loose. They could be too tight. So, you know, so any of that can exacerbate it, but it can also, you know, be fine to where, you know, like Dr. Hamdani said, with some modifications of things, you know, either one uh, can be made to be more comfortable. Dr. Hamdani, people are asking where they can actually purchase prism glasses. Uh, so prisms uh, can be obtained anywhere that you get glasses. Uh, and the way they work, um, so they're prescribed by a doctor. Um, so you would go to um, first of all, before you get prisms, you should also have your regular prescription rechecked by your eye doctor. But in addition, that doctor or another doctor, like an ophthalmologist, for example, would give you, would add on to that a prescription for prism. And then you would take it to anywhere that you get glasses, and they would be able to do them for you. One kind of uh, cautionary note, though, is that prisms can be expensive uh, depending on what kind they are and where you try to get them. Um, so, uh, um, so before you get PRISM, you should do a little bit of price comparison at different places. Uh, and you should also ask for them to give you a warranty such that if the prescription needs to be changed for any reason, um, so let's say the amount of PRISM wasn't correct the first time and needs to be adjusted, that that is covered under a warranty. Oh, important to know. Um, people have questions on night vision. How does Parkinson's disease affect people's ability to actually see at nighttime? Um, so night vision gets back to the contrast sensitivity that Dr. Fabrikowski was talking about earlier. So uh, at night or in dim lighting, there's a less difference in lighting or in, in, in color, if you will, uh, between two different things that you see. So as Dr. Fabrikowski said, it's the difference between white and black versus light gray and dark gray. Um, and so uh, night vision is important for everyone. And I think especially for people with PD who are free, maybe frequently getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. So a really important point is that if you are getting up at night, you should always, always turn the lights on when you do so. Um, and I know there's um, a little extra step and you may be worried about waking up your partner or something like that, but it's important to be able to see where you're going and also to minimize the risk of falls at night um, if you're not able to see well and you might be tripping on things in front of you. That's true. Um, people want to know whether Parkinson's disease affects glaucoma at all. So that's a really good question that we don't really know the answer to yet. Um, so as Dr. Fabrikowski said, glaucoma is a common uh, eye disease that increases in prevalence with age, and Parkinson's also is in a, increases with age. So because they both increase with age, it can be hard to tell whether um, glaucoma is more common in PD than not. There have been a couple of studies trying to address this, and some have suggested that perhaps PD may be a slight risk factor for glaucoma, um, and conversely, maybe glaucoma is a slight risk factor for PD. Although, again, these are several studies with their own limitations, so I think the jury is still out on this. Um, glaucoma is, in a sense, thought to be somewhat of a neurodegenerative disorder, so it's degeneration of the optic nerve, um, and Parkinson's, of course, is a neurodegenerative disorder, too. So there is reason to think that they might be related, but currently we don't know that for sure. The same can be said of age-related macular degeneration, too. Mm -hmm. Dr. Fabrikowski, somebody asks whether Parkinson's can cause blindness. 
Uh, Parkinson's itself directly uh, cannot cause blindness. Um, there are conditions that can be sort of exacerbated by PD, like dryness, you know, uh, maybe uh, some, you know, sort of thinning in the retina, you know, that we were talking about, Dr. Hamdani was talking about, but nothing sort of blindness um, related, certainly. Great. See some of the other questions uh, that we have. Um, somebody wants to know whether Parkinson's disease can cause eyelids to open some, but not all the way. Dr. Uh, I think what you're getting at there is is sort of something called eyelid drooping or ptosis, and that's when you open the eyes, and they, but they don't open as much as you'd like. Um, that's um, not usually caused by Parkinson's. It can occur just as a part of normal aging. There are a lot of other conditions that can cause it as well. Um, sometimes it can be hard to tell whether that's because the eyelids are drooping or whether it's almost like an eyelid opening apraxia that they're not fully opening. Um, but I think if it's, if I'm understanding it correctly, if it's just that when your eyes are open, when you're awake, your eyelids droop or they're kind of come down more than normal, that would is probably not related to PD. Would Botox help that? Uh, no. In fact, Botox would make that worse. It might cause the drooping to worse, worsen then. Um, uh, the treatment for that uh, is... Sometimes uh, there's a little kind of attachment to glasses that can go to help lift the eyelids a little bit, which are called eyelid crutches. But if not, um, surgery to to elevate the eyelid um, is how you would treat that. Um, again, uh, if someone is going to go down that route of getting eyelid surgery, you would want to really make sure that that doesn't affect the uh, ability of the eyelids to close when you blink, which Dr. Fabrikowski talked about earlier as being really important for preventing dry eye. So um, there's always a risk of dry eye, really with any eye surgery of any kind, but especially surgery on the eyelids. Dr. Fabrikowski, are there any supplements that can help uh, treat vision problems? Somebody's specifically asking about fish oil. Fish oil. So there are lots and lots of supplements uh, for, that are sort of designated for the eyes. So when you walk into CVS, Walgreens, fill in the blanks, sort of whatever you know, pharmacy, there are t there are tons and tons of drops. You know, or drops. Uh, sorry. Uh, oral supplements you can take. Some are indicated for certain purposes, like fish oil and omega-3s are known to help for blepharitis. You know, but just because they're you know, a supplement doesn't mean they don't come with side effects. So sometimes they can, these supplements can cause thinning of bloods, they can cause you know, stomach ulcers and things like that. So it's like before starting anything, it's important to talk about it, uh, one, with your doctor or neurologist, and two, with your eye doctor or ophthalmologist you know, to see, you know, do I need these? So people who need you know, omega-3s, they typically have blepharitis their glands are sort of clogged up. You know, do you have that? You know, hard to tell, you know, until you get an exam. There are some supplements for the retina that they have found in certain cases can prevent the acceleration of macular generation, doesn't prevent sort of the inception of it, you know, but people that already have it, it's helpful uh, to stop its progression. So there are eye uh, vitamins, but it's sort of take some discussing and sort of deciding whether one, it's warranted for whatever your, you know, whatever your condition is, um, and B, should you be taking those with the other medications and things like that. And Dr. Fabrikowski, how often should eye exams, you know, happen? So uh, the only the only guidelines we have um, are the American Academy of Ophthalmology recommends that under the age of 55 you come every other year, and then above the age of 55 it's every year, uh, just for a general checkup. You know, some people come more often. So for example, let's say you came today to the eye doctor and they said, you know what, you've got some dryness in the eyes. Are you bothered? Yes, I am bothered. Well, let's try these eye drops, and then maybe we'll follow up with you in six weeks to see if it's working, and then you sort of you know become, come more often. Or if like Dr. Hamdan 
he says, we see you for uh, double vision and we prescribe some prisms, usually we like to check up with you afterwards to see how the prisms are working. Do we give you the right quantity? Are they the right direction? Are they fitting you well? So I generally tell people to start out with once a year. And then depending on, you know, what the discussion is, depends on how bothered you are with what's happening and what the treatment is, uh, maybe more often. The only thing I'll add to that, um, Dr. Fabrikowski, is that um, there's certain conditions, medical conditions, that if you have them, um, increase the frequency of your eye exams, or rather you should start getting them yearly sooner. And those are if you have diabetes um, or if you are at risk for glaucoma, which means you either have a family history of glaucoma or you're of African-American or Hispanic ancestry. Those are reasons that you would start doing those yearly exams even younger. Great. Well, here we are already at the end of the hour. And in review... With the help of our panelists, we have learned that Parkinson's can cause many symptoms ranging from dry eyes to double visions and even hallucinations. Not only can visual disturbances interfere with reading or driving, they can worsen walking and balance problems and even contribute to hallucinations. And while vision problems can be due to Parkinson's disease and the medications used to treat it, seeing an ophthalmologist may be needed to determine if it is due to Parkinson's disease or to unrelated conditions of the eye or eyelid. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today, as well as to thank our patient representative, John Merchant. Thanks to Dr. Fabrikowski and Dr. Hamdani for sharing their expertise. I'm sure that our audience today would agree that this was truly an eye-opening webinar. We'll be sending a link to the webinar on demand to listen again or share as you'd like. Please mark your calendars for our next webinar on May 16th, where we'll discuss efforts to look deep into cells to better define, measure, and treat Parkinson's disease. And we'll have staff behind the scenes to answer your questions live. So thank you again to our panelists. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. My pleasure. This is very informative. I'm sure lots of people learned lots about the eyes that they didn't know beforehand. So everybody have a great day. Signing off. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.